happy to have you guys here. The room is filling up. Uh, how's everybody doing today, man? How's everybody's week been? Let me know, man. We got we got a lot of friends in the house today. We got Kate Strachan in the house, Vin Bashista, Naresh, what up, Akshay, what up? Tours in the building, Matt. What's going on, man? Super happy to have all you guys here. So, how's everybody's week, man? Anybody learn anything new or interesting? Looks like Vin has a guest. Is that your daughter, Vin? Hi. That's awesome. She has no idea what I do, so now she's stuck here listening to me. You get to listen to to Dad talk about um, interesting things like machines learning. Yeah, hopefully it won't be boring. No, you won't be. You won't be bored. Trust me. This is a a fun fun time. Trust me. Right on, man. Super excited to have all you guys here. Um, Tor, I saw you had your hand up. Did you, uh, do you want to start off with the question or was that just by accident? It was a small accident, but yeah. I'll take the opportunity to just say hi to everyone. And yeah, right it's a good show. So <laughs> let's have some fun. Right on, man. Thanks for, for coming by. Albert's in the building. Albert, I thought you said you're going to be not in your car. What, what happened, man? What happened? Uh, so, hey guys, welcome, man. Let's, uh, let's get it. Yeah, let's get it going. Plans. I got yeah, that's, that's stay flexible, man. That's the way to do it. Um, okay, so if anybody wants to kick us off with a question, uh, go ahead and put it right there in the chat. Just say you got a question. I'll queue you up and I'll add you to the list. Uh, but how about we start with a question just to kind of seed things and, and get things going? Uh, I'm just curious if anybody has done any any interesting research or reading this week i've particularly been interested in sabermetrics not like super interested in it but just from a feature engineering perspective i think the way baseball statistics come up with these different features to predict whether a team is going to win or not is just really interesting and there's a lot of learning you can do from that and creativity you can transfer over to uh whatever domain that you're working on to, to solve a problem. So one thing I found interesting that I've never heard of before this week was this concept of Pythagorean expectation. I thought that was really fascinating um, and it kind of blew my mind. Is there anything out there that you guys had picked up or learned this week that you want to tell us about? I'm learning about how the LinkedIn algorithm operates. <laughs> so I'm doing a lot of A-B testing. <laughs> if you if you like, that's kind of, uh, that's still some learning. Uh, and uh, yeah, just focusing. Actually, the last couple of months, um, I've stayed behind a little bit on, on my data science kind of uh, side projects and stuff. And uh, things have been quite busy, but, uh, you know, there's time to catch up. Um, yeah. Was there anything that you learned that was kind of a surprising or fascinating about the LinkedIn algorithm? Because I know all of us here would probably be interested in, in knowing how to game that thing <laughs> well apparently uh linkedin has you know if you you know if you want to expand your network for example right uh there's two ways you can kind of start sending requests and stuff and if you if, if for some reason you're very consistent and you just you know, head down and you keep sending uh you know requests to people uh similar uh profile or you want to connect to uh if you hit like something like a 30 40 a day and just recently it might it might give you a warning which I found, um, you know, 30, 40 a day, obviously it's not 
normal, but if you want to expand your network to reach out to people who you genuinely have similar interests, it's not too bad. You're not selling, you know, 200, 300 a day. So I think they're they're tightening the rules about how you can connect and how genuine it is. But I don't know what other people think or find in terms of, you know, expanding your network. And the other, the other, the other thing I was looking at is followers versus connections. I, you know, do you have the connect button on or the, uh, or the follow me button? What works better? Yeah, I've, I've came up against some interesting limits on LinkedIn where they thought that I was doing prospecting or something like that. And they limited the number of searches I could do. And I, I found that uh, weird kind of like, I was like, how do you like, what does that even mean? Prospecting? Like does they were trying to get me to upgrade to like a recruiter level um, uh, package. And I didn't understand why that was happening. Vin, go So ahead. I've got a kind of interesting perspective on this because you know, I'm on in, I'm on LinkedIn and all of that, but I also did some recruiting work. And so when they say you're a prospector, that means that you're looking for candidates, trying to recruit them. And so a lot of the behavioral caps that LinkedIn has in place is to encourage people to grab more expensive recruiting accounts. So if you're sending a lot of connection requests, it's immediately thinking you're a recruiter. If you're you know, if you're reaching out to a whole lot of people using InMail, it's going to assume that you're a recruiter. And that's kind of the first default behavior of LinkedIn is to say, okay, are you a recruiter? The second one is, are you doing some sales or marketing? Are you attempting to sell to people? And they've got like a sales product as well, where you can go in and, and do sales. But a lot of the caps and limitations that LinkedIn puts in place are a result of feedback from people. So if you're sending a bunch of, of connection invites out and people are hitting the feedback button to say, I don't know this person, or you know they wanna report this particular connection, or they're even hitting ignore or refuse at a high percentage, you end up getting flagged and you'll start seeing warnings, you'll start seeing some error messages. And LinkedIn starts trying to either sell you something or figure out if you're a bot and try to restrict your limit to to their platform. We think about that. We kind of reverse engineer that, right? Like everything you've talked about right now, just in my head, I'm just thinking of different features they could use to quantify our behavior, right? One of them can be number of requests sent out per day, percentage of requests that turned into actual connections, percentage of requests that were marked as I don't know, uh, and a whole host of other features, right? So they probably got some interesting algorithms uh, on the background or models in the background to, to help them identify these type of accounts. So what do you think those types of, well, what are some interesting features that you could see coming out of uh, these, these things that you're just mentioning? Well, the way that LinkedIn looks at people is based on how much time they can get others to spend on platform. Like that's one of their major metrics is how much time any individual gets other individuals to spend on platform. And so that's, you know, all the metrics around that. If you're posting frequently, if you do blogs, if you do something like that on LinkedIn, you're all going to, you know, you're going to see more engagement allowed and you're going to see more of sort of a latitude because they know you're not a bot and you're there to help sort of your goals align with the platform's goals. But what they're doing from a behavioral perspective is really, like I said, looking for a recruiter's behavior. And, you know, a recruiter is going to reach out to more people than they're going to have reach out to, you know, respond or uh, initiate. So you're going to look at how many direct messages you end up getting. 
versus how many you send, how many connection invites you end up getting versus how many you send. Uh, you know, and it's looking also at the content of your messages. And so if you're doing job postings or job related language in your DMs or in the emails that you're sending out or the connection invites, obviously it's going to use just basic language to figure out that you are sending out jobs or that you're posting links to jobs. And again, it's going to try to push you towards buying one of their accounts or, you know, figure out if you're a bot because there's a whole lot of bots on LinkedIn. And I think that's like, we don't talk about that enough. There's just tons of bots on LinkedIn. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know if I've ever connected with or come across a bot. I see Matt Housley has some interesting insight here. Matt? Oh, no, no. That's just an interesting, interesting thought. I mean, if we think about it, it totally makes sense that LinkedIn is going to be a lot like, say, Tinder or Instagram, where they're definitely, we are the product, right? So in addition to suppressing bad behavior, they want to stimulate content generation because that is their product that they're selling to the world. That's basically their Netflix. It's all of our blog posts, all of our live streams, all that stuff. So if we're working in companies that, that kind of rely on user-generated content as one of their core features, let's say that we are a you know data scientist, data analyst, whatever, product manager working in, in this type of environment, what are some interesting metrics that we would want to track for our users? Love to hear any insight. Antonio, I don't know if that was... Uh, no, no, I'm here. Sorry. I was oh. making some turkey burgers. I had to flip them in the oven. <laughs> oh, no. I just saw you're, uh, you're unmuted, so I didn't know if that was uh, to, to chime in. No, I think I'll let somebody else go go on that one. I'll have to think about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Uh, Makiko, I wonder if you would have some insight here. Hey there. Can you see me? <laughs> Sorry. I'm also like, I have my lunch on the side as well. Um, so this is probably not a book. Um, yeah. So in terms of metrics, right? Like, um, so there's a couple, so LinkedIn is not that different from other social networks, right? So you can, when you think about metrics, you can kind of think about it sort of piecewise, right? So one feature LinkedIn has is the, uh, feed, the newsfeed feature, right? It's going to have very, very similar metrics to what Facebook does. Um, uh, there's, okay. So there's feed. Um, a lot of those metrics are going to be around, like, for example, like Vin said, time spent, um, did people like click on the posts as they were coming in? Um, also like views as well, since a lot of times they have that, uh, sort of already built into the product, they can get a sense of like, you know, if people are just scrolling by, like they've seen it, but they just scrolled. Right. And you see that on the bottom of the LinkedIn post versus people who have viewed this. Right. Um, so there's a newsfeed. Then there is also the advertising, um, sites. So for example, how many people have done click throughs through that as well? Um, and then, I'd say the two other components, right, are the um, messaging. So they can look at, for example, how many people have sent messages versus and like how long they are compared to how many people have received them. So like, what's the open rate there? Um, and then there is also like the like curated content. Um, they would probably once again look at very, very similar metrics of the like who, how many people did we reach? Um, as part of like the A-B testing, right? So how many people did this actually get sent out to? Um, how many people like viewed it? How many people like click through and how many people engaged? I think for most of the metrics, like they're going to be similar across like sort of all the different components. Um, they're just tracking through like the... Uh, the conversion through the different stages. Um, some features might have something that's a little bit more domain specific. So for example, for like feed-based ranking. Um, so once upon a time, right? Like Facebook just did like a time-based, right? Facebook and LinkedIn both. They just said like, we will put posts there by time-based. But then they realized that like, well, we have some like really relevant posts that could be getting sort of more engagement. 
And so what they start doing in terms of like ranking and recommendation was uh, looking at metrics uh, that really kind of like Google search actually pioneer, right? So looking at like uh, NGDC, that's a very, very common uh, feed ranking metric. Um, and other down. things. Like, what does that stand for? Net, it's like net or NCDG, net cumulative distribution gain or net gain cumulative distribution. Um, there's a couple that are like kind of similar, right? Um, yeah, I mean, those are the metrics that I think like I would care about. And like they've certainly come up in just a lot of like the conversations I've had with like MLE teams working on ranking and search and all that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really, really good insight. And I think this is, this is actually a great conversation for anybody who has interviews coming up with like Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, anywhere where there's user generated content and you're interviewing as a data scientist on that team. Uh, Megan has an interesting question here. Megan, would you like to go ahead and ask that? Sure. Hi everyone. Um, I was curious, given some of the earlier discussion about, um, you know, banning bots and identifying, you know, users who are not there in good faith. Um, what about the other side? Um, and I'm asking because I got contacted a few weeks ago by someone who identified themselves as a recruiter. But as our conversation went on a little bit, I started to see some red flags and think that maybe this wasn't legit. For example, this person seemed not to be able to spell their name consistently. That seemed a little weird. Um, so I was just wondering, one, if that was a problem, and two, if LinkedIn or other social networks, well, I guess LinkedIn might be unique in this way, um, you know, what metrics would you use to track that and identify those people? Because that also suggests predatory behavior. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'd turn this one over to, to Vin. I think you might have some great insights here. Yeah, bots have, especially the badly built ones, have one flaw, which is all their messages are very, very similar. And so if you look at just the general similarity of messages to each other, you, you almost like that's going to get you a lot of different bots. Some bots even have the exact same first message across the board. They won't vary it at all. And what you're hearing, like if, if they can't consistently spell their name, that's actually an indicator of a human behavior because a bot's going to just have their name memorized. So that name's going to be in there and they're never going to get it wrong. But somebody who's typing and, and mistyping, you know, on their phone or something like that is actually going to be more likely to to get their name right. However, if you're really... That was a little different than what I experienced, though. In this case, the, the name was spelled one way on LinkedIn and another way on their email. Um, so it wasn't typing. It wasn't, you know, I just missed something on the keyboard. Maybe I misinterpreted that, but I thought it was a little weird. But the, the, your insight is interesting, though, that um, about human versus, you know, bot behavior. Yeah, no, if you're seeing a difference between email and name, that can happen. A lot of times companies... Uh, you get hired with one you know, version of your name and you take a nickname or something like that. So there are legitimate explanations for that, but that is a little weird, especially if it's like the last name. That, that's a really strange one. It was actually the first name. Um, I could see that more. Yeah. Why, why the first name versus the last name? I'm curious. Well, uh, last name you're not going to be changing unless, uh, you know, your uh, relationship status were to were to change and impact your last name. But for first name, there's a lot of people like myself who'll take a nickname partway through their career because they get tired of people not spelling their name right or not being able to pronounce their name. And so you'll often see, you know, we'll take on nicknames or, or change the first name slightly. Some people end up using their middle name instead of their first name. What about Sarah with an H versus no H? <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean, I guess, yeah. 
I know I'm peppering you with questions here, but it's, no, that's, it's a little weird. And, and, you know, the detail is very interesting. Something that I did a while ago ties into this, looking at the way people uh, refer to themselves on resumes and there's variation, like first names will change sometimes significantly over time. And it, I could never figure out if it was typos or if it was intentional, because there were things like that where their name would go from one spelling to a different derivation. And I couldn't figure out, like I said, I, I had a hard time figuring out whether that was generated by a bot because, you know, that was an auto-generated resume or whether that was genuine behavior and somebody actually had changed their name. I couldn't, couldn't get a good handle on that. But it, like I said, I've seen it in data sets significant enough times that maybe, maybe that's a common behavior. But anyway, coming back to the original question. So anyways, identifying bots that way by the consistency of the messages they're sending out. Yeah, that's usually a good way. Because like I said, the first time is a lot of the times their first message will be universally the same. Whereas non-bots typically will have some over time variation on their first message. Obviously, there's spammers who fall into the same category where it's actually a person, but they're just copy pasting a message and spamming it hundreds and hundreds of times. And that's something that'll get you gray listed because there's different levels of control. You know, there's, you're fine. Everything's normal, questionable behavior, very questionable behavior. And you're definitely a bot and you can go through different levels of, I guess, sanctions mm -hmm. based on where LinkedIn or any other social network finds you to be in their, in their behavioral. And like I said, that's a, it's a usually just looking at your message, looking at message content, how often you get messages responded to. And this even works for phone call spam. A lot of the times the, you know, you'll have your account flagged if you use one of those automated dialers or automated phone number messaging systems and no one replies. If your reply rates under a certain amount, you'll get flagged as a bot. So there's a lot of different tips and tricks that companies will use at a very high level. And then there's a lot more complex user analysis that goes on that would be kind of a long conversation if we got into it. But it's really interesting. Some of the things that companies have done to figure out who the bots are. And then a lot of times when they figure out who the bot is, in many cases, they don't do anything about it, which is even stranger that there are platforms that allow bots, you know, who are obviously bots. And it's, I wonder where LinkedIn falls on that because you would expect a professional network to be a little bit more buttoned down. Okay. Thanks. On the point about copy pasting, I had somebody copy and paste a message to me. They called me Neil and said they loved the work I was doing at Sharpest Minds. And I was like, none of those two things are true. Uh, that is definitely copy pasting gone wrong. Tor, I saw you had your hand up there. Uh, go for it. And then after Tor, we'll go to uh, Austin. Uh, also, shout out Greg Coquillo in the house. What up? Yeah, it kind of just goes a little bit back to, to LinkedIn and the experience I've had. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, like a few weeks back, where I was seeing a noticeable change in my feed after I joined this program and with the linking up and connecting with people on this channel and more now looking at ML and AI and blockchain and all these other things that the fee, I'm starting to miss my original feed because it was more financial and in my field, but now it's becoming very more, much more technical and, you know, ML related and AI related. So clearly there's some metrics that they're using to track this and, you know, connecting with people, I haven't had any experience problems, but then again, I connect with people I want to be connected to. I don't just sit and 
and connect every day. And, you know, that's not my goal. My goal is to have a network that I can use and can talk to, just like this network as well. And uh, with regards to these um, people contacting you for job opportunities, please sign up here and please sign up there. My simple approach is I leave the message for 24 hours, 48 hours. If they're interested, they'll come back. And in 48 hours, I respond. And normally, you don't get a response back. It's already, you're already forgotten and moved on. So, but if they are real people, they'll come back to you. That's the approach I take. Okay. Yeah, I want to add a point to that. Um, I wonder how LinkedIn's handling duplication of content. Uh, a lot of people are sharing cheat sheets on R, Python, etc. And while that's helpful, I see the same cheat sheet that I'm trying to download from different influencers. So wonder if LinkedIn is trying to track away and control how that's shared amongst the network. And if there's network bubbles, so if people within the same group are sharing the same content, then their engagement is driven more because the same number of common people are liking or engaging on those posts. And in the future, if LinkedIn decides to start paying influencers for their content, it's going to be a big problem how to monitor that there's no same content being shared by the by two different people. Uh, so when you download a particular file that's shared, um, I'm guessing there is some way that LinkedIn tracks how many people viewed it and downloaded it. And those people will not get the same recommendation in their newsfeed if somebody else is posting the same content. I don't know if that's helpful because end of the day, everybody wants to have that content. But again, if you're thinking about paying influencers based on their content creating abilities, then there has to be a way to monitor that there is no duplication of that content. What are your thoughts on that? Vin, you got some interesting insights here. And then after Vin, let's hear from Mikiko. Yeah, just real quick. LinkedIn definitely, I call it nerfs, but there's probably a better technical term than that for uh, deranking any posts that are duplicates, especially from accounts that are frequent reposters, because you'll see certain accounts are just basically mirrors of a couple of different influencers' accounts. They'll reshare, repost, a lot of the same content and LinkedIn, you know, keeps an eye on that. Uh, then every once in a while, somebody else gets kind of pulled into that. Like if I reshare uh, an event that I've been in and it's been shared by a bunch of other participants, if I'm not one of the first few, no one will ever see that post. And so they definitely do a lot of work with avoiding duplications, which is good. Akiko. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting. Like, to be honest, I don't know how effective LinkedIn actually is in terms of, um, enforcing good behavior on LinkedIn. Um, just cause I, I've seen some pretty like awful stuff, like especially against like women, people of color, like LGBTQ. If you're at the intersection of all three, you know, then it's just really, really terrible and awful. So like, I don't know. And especially too, I think like after the election, like it, it seems like the, and I think most social media sites were just struggling with this, right. Where they're like, how do you like, like, how do you, how do you, um, how do you split out, you know, things that are like a, a, di- a difference in opinion versus things that are just straight up like sexist, racist, like bigoted material. Right. So I don't know if LinkedIn, like how, how good they are like at actually enforcing these things. But I will say that like, if you, so, so if you see influencers or content they don't like, you can always like unfollow a person. Uh, you know, I like to, like when I see comments or posts, I'll go back into that person's history and go like, you know, was this just something that they were misunderstanding or was there like actually like a history of like, you know, poor decisions and choices and values uh, being reflected, um, you know, uh, but there are definitely some times where it's like, you know, do you connect or do you follow? 
Uh, so there's a lot of like influencers that like, you know, I'll hit follow. Um, and then there's a lot of people who've requested to join my network, right? Where, you know, it's, you can't follow like 5,000 people, right? You're just not going to get great content. So you could always unfollow there as well. But, you know, I will say that like, uh, I think every, I think a lot of people struggle on LinkedIn with being authentic versus like being like really professional. It, it is a fine line in this day and age. Um, and it's something that I think everyone has to figure out where that line is for themselves. Um, you know, but it's, it's important. Now, with that being said, in terms of just the metrics, right? Like there are some like on-platform metrics that you can track, but once the behavior gets like off-platform, then it becomes very, very difficult to measure that. Um, so as much as possible. And that's one of the reasons why it's good to sort of keep those conversations like on LinkedIn until you sort of feel like they're vetted and you can kind of like, um, you know, you, you can move off of that. Um, yeah, one thing I, I will just call out though, cause someone asked if this was a problem. Uh, I've definitely heard from a bunch of my H1B visa friends that, you know, they've had experiences quite recently where they've been hit up by people who look like external recruiters and a lot of companies will use external recruiters. That's not a huge issue. Um, but essentially like their information, like they've been given the information, they've done the interview and then like suddenly they don't hear anything or suddenly they start seeing some of their information like going online. So you always want to be doing that due diligence um, just because like it is something that has become an issue. Like at least for most of my H-1B visa friends have, have told me so. And then if yeah. you follow people, does that negatively affect their engagement on your post? So if you don't want to see someone's content, you can unfollow them. But does that affect negatively for you if that stops them from engaging your post or your posts no longer show up in their newsfeed because you're not following them anymore? LinkedIn oh, so if you, you don't if want you to follow, like your information still shows up like on their newsfeed, um, which is you know, I think that's like, it's a great, it's a great option that I feel like a lot of people don't use. Um, but you definitely should, you know, um, and that's, and that, and one other, and that's the thing, right? Like just because someone doesn't have great content, it doesn't mean like they're a bad person and it's not like you should disconnect from them. Right. Sometimes it's just literally like, they're talking about like life hacking and I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> like, I just, I just want to follow like the ML ops, ML, MLN space. Um, deep learning. It's, it's interesting. Uh, what people are doing on like, you know, how they're hacking NVIDIA GPUs or how, how they're finding, you know, the 3000 series from some black market. I don't know um, that or NFTs or, or, or uh, crypto. Like I just care about none of those things. I really just care about like who are, who's doing the work in software engineering, who's doing the stuff in ML ops and MLN, who's like productionizing models. Right. So just cause you unfollow them, it doesn't mean like, like once again, they're like a bad person or they're whatever. Right. And some people, they just sort of don't create content. Um, so it might have some impact on their posts. Um, but like, if you're looking at sort of like average engagement, right? Like if you look at the metric, it's literally, it's literally like, you know, the bottom part is just like who is capable of seeing those posts. And above that, it's just like the actual engagement activity, right? And when they're looking at metrics, like through the pipeline, um, they will sort of take into consideration, like, you know, what is the denominator versus like the numerator and what criteria go through there for sure. Going back to that part about like that difference between like, being authentic versus being professional, like why can't they be compatible, right? Like why can't I just be one person and this is me and I'm just going to share what I want. I'm just curious if anybody is struggling with that. Somebody who who does a really good job at that, just being them entire selves is that uh, like Jonathan Tesser, like I love his posts. He puts out some amazing insights and some just, he just drops bombs, but I don't know, like 
I would I challenge somebody to just show me that the the terms and conditions in LinkedIn that says no, you must only post professional things and that is it because don't really think that exists. Um, but yeah, that was an awesome topic about LinkedIn. Damn, that was that was going deep on there. Uh, let's go to Austin because Austin had a question in there. And if anybody else has a question, go ahead and just type out like I've got a question in the chat. I'll add you to the queue. Go for it. Yeah. So uh, last time my question was uh, around kind of planning out data projects, but then as I thought about it a little bit more, um, I'm always looking for better ways to problem solve. Um, and some of those ways that I want, some of those approaches are sometimes you can use mental models or um, maybe it's like a systematic way that you kind of think about it. And I'm always trying to find a combination. So something that I can use as a, her, a heuristic, but then also, Hey, here's kind of a do this and do this and kind of work through a process. Um, so I'm just curious as to um, what other people use when they're trying to solve uh, a problem that maybe it's been done before, or maybe it's pretty novel and new. Um, how do they approach that? Let's hear from uh, Antonio and then Eric on this one. Sure. So I, I sent some resources, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sent some resources in the chat, but a big fan, a person who's changed kind of like the way I think and solve problems and learn is Tim Ferriss. Um, his book, Four Hour Chef, I mean, all of his books guys I've been through, but that one kind of teaches you how to learn. And the one principle that has kind of stuck with me is the, the Pareto principle or the 80-20 rule, as it's called. And just thinking of what is 20% of the work that you do that brings 80% of the value. Um, in my previous role, I was a like data analyst, BI person. And what happened was a lot of the people start got promoted and then COVID hit. So what we got stuck is with two people, we couldn't hire. So we had two people and we had about 25 to 30 analysts or like non-technical people that we had to support. And it was around that time that I ran into this 80-20 rule. So I started thinking about it like, okay, what can I deliver to these 30 people who are all screaming, they want their projects, right? I'm never going to finish everything. And this is going to be like kind of a nightmare. So it was always like, okay, I'm not going to, somebody asked me for five things. I'm not going to be able to do all five, but maybe if I deliver these two things for them, then they're going to be happy and they'll leave me alone at least for, for a while, you know? So I, now I'm in a different, I'm in a strategy role uh, where we work with, try to break down silos uh, and do like a AI systems and data product. And when you ask for requirements or you look for people, I mean, they'll, they'll just ask you for everything in the world, right? So it's just, again, it's the nailing down that what is that thing that they could start using right away and that's going to bring uh, value to them because usually once you start talking to people and understanding them you really see that they care about one or two things the most and then everything else is kind of like a little extra um so that would be i i'd say my, my biggest tip and that's worked for me now even work from home i'm like hey i'll do this in the morning and then i'll go for a nice half an hour walk afterwards it's a nice day so definitely suggest that Eric, you had some great comments in the chat as well. Oh, Eric, you're oh, you're driving. Um, okay, so there we go. I guess you can drive now. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right, cool. So um, my video is so terrible. I'm just gonna turn it off. Um, anyway, so I was mentioning there are two process improvement methodologies I really like. One is Demaic, and I'm from Six Sigma, and so you know you can look that up anywhere. And uh, define, measure, analyze, improve, and control. And then the other is 
was made up by a, a place I used to work at OC Tanner called Steps. And it's see, think, experiment, prove, and sustain. And it's a super helpful five-step method that's really easy to explain to a non-technical audience. And so like any, like, like a data project, like I mentioned in the chat, like the seeing and thinking, understanding is actually, is actually the part that requires all the work. Eric, I think you might have... Uh, oh, no. Did I lose you? No, no. We still hear you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, did you hear me what I was saying about the seeing and thinking taking most of the work? Yes. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, the seeing and thinking time of, like, really getting to know the problem, taking the time to define the problem and define the metrics and then get the data before before like trying to implement some solution that you find out was taking you off in the wrong direction the whole time anyway, right? And then what I found was in, in working with like groups is like, if you talk about it and discover the problem well enough, eventually the solution becomes clear. You don't have to argue about the potential solutions because the data really shows pretty clear path forward. And then you can experiment of just like taking the small experiments forward, fail fast, then prove out whatever works and then, you know, like scale or whatever, you know, to make something that is sustainable from there. And so that's just a, an approach I really like because it focuses so heavily on defining and understanding your problem and whether that's your audience or your market or whatever your process and then, and then iterating towards improvement from there. Yeah. I like that, that defining the problem is super, super key. And I, uh, Evangelo said um, the five whys, which I'm a huge proponent of just keep asking why in a non-adversarial way and just to kind of get to the the root cause um Al, albert bellamy would you like to to chime in here first time we get to actually hear you uh chat here yeah i, th I think i only spoke like one other time um yeah so that's I, I i'm just kind of getting with the five whys i just started the uh the google data analytics cert and um so yeah i'm i'm interested in that. I, I don't think I've ever formally, I've been a very military oriented uh, data analysis masters. And so I don't, I don't remember any mental models being kind of presented as such, like apply this to different problems. I think we usually just, just say, well, if it looks like something that you have historical knowledge or muscle memory of, then apply whatever work that time, um, which, which really works with kind of how we do in the military. Um, we, we apply kind of a square peg to every problem. Um, there's sort of a, a problem solving, uh, you know, define the problem, um, you know, figure out what your resource shortfalls are, get a couple different courses of action and then pick one and, and you know, go straight through it. Um, and, and that's just a process for everything. Um, but yeah, I, I, I am interested in the idea of mental models. I think when I first started looking at getting into data science, as a profession, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Uh, yeah, not, not something I'm particularly good at, but uh, definitely trying to learn. I like that. Not good at it yet. Just keep, keep learning, keep getting exposed to, to new stuff and figure it out. Um, Russell, I, I saw you put some good tips into the chat there. Do you want to chime in here? Hey guys. Um, again, my usual trick. I can't remember everything I've been chatting in there. Uh, I've been putting in the chat because there's, there's a lot gone in there. Um, let me go back. Uh, yeah. So one, one of the first things I put on, I think, was in response to um, uh, Makiko's uh, comments about poor content on LinkedIn. So I was just really interested in, in how, uh, uh, you know, a non-human entity, so an algorithm, an AI system can determine between something that's, you know, a legitimately poor choice of content from an uneducated person versus something that's purposefully biased or prejudiced or bigoted, et cetera. You know, if someone has just inadvertently followed something or liked something that 
they really shouldn't have. How can the system determine that that was a you know a, a genuine mistake by someone that just didn't really pay attention to some someone who's really trying to put something out there to you know spread false news or, or some other agenda? Yes. Yeah, Good question. I mean, if you think about it from, I don't know, like if the objective is to keep people on the app and keep people engaged, do they have an incentive to take down these stupid ass posts that people put? Like, is that, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Um, let's, uh, if anybody got any insight on this, I'd be happy to, well, to turn it over. So I've got a little more inf- info on that. You know, I, I do use the, uh, the ellipses buttons on the top and, you know, I've reported posts in the past. Um, some, there's been feet, well, they've disappeared, they've been taken down. But more often than not, the, the message seems to come back from LinkedIn that, you know, we've checked into this, thanks very much, but it doesn't go against our policies uh, and it stays up there. And I would say from my personal perspective and, you know, uh, best intentions, you know, I am biased. Every, every person is biased to a greater or lesser extent. But I don't think they're really borderline. They, I, I think they should have been a little stronger on those things. The ones that have been completely black and white yet gone, but some things I, I think shouldn't stay there. So so the system for reporting posts, I think, can, can improve. Uh, and then jumping back to this, how do you determine if it's just a genuine mistake or someone is really spreading you know, malicious stuff? That's got to be difficult to do within a platform. So if the linking out algorithm looks at the stuff they're posting, um, it may seem that they're genuine. But if it can look outside of the ecosystem of LinkedIn and see what they're doing, say maybe on Twitter or or, or Instagram or Facebook or something, and they're they're constantly posting nasty stuff on there, then you know it, it would be able to better educate itself. But that I, I think we're a ways from that. You know, I don't think we're going to get models where these competing organisations are going to share. Their, their IP, you know? Vin, you got some comments in there, and I feel like this might be a topic that you have some uh, knowledge bombs to drop about. Um, yeah, when it comes to the way that recommender systems work, uh, there's just a commonly well-known, I don't know, truism that if it gets you angry or if it makes you feel like more of a part of a small, deeply connected group, you will engage with it, you'll spend more time on the platform. And there is a lot of speculation that most of the social media companies understand very well what their recommender systems are putting in front of people. They understand that their recommender systems are often throwing very, very misleading content at people intentionally to keep them on their platforms. There's in the US, we're going through, you know, yet another in a series of endless hearings where we ask the same questions for you know, content providers, content platforms over and over and over again. And we say, why are you recommending things that are obviously false? And one of the big interesting things that happens is that spammers, misinformers, and the platforms, their interests all actually align. They all have the same objective. They want to be seen by more people. They want to be more engaged with. And so in many ways, they game the system. They use the intent of the recommender system to their advantage because they understand it very, very well. They understand, uh, you know, at a psyops level, exactly how to put the right kinds of content in front of people to get them to engage and to, in many cases, radicalize their thinking. It's using information to radicalize people's thinking. And there's a lot of questions around how much the social media platforms are knowingly contributing to it and benefiting from it. Obviously, they're benefiting from it quite a bit. 
but trying to create an algorithm that senses intent. That's you know an interesting conversation because on the marketing side, we seem to be experts at it. But then on the content moderation side, the same people who are experts at doing intent analysis for marketing are suddenly inept at doing intent analysis for misinformation or hate speech and so on. And so there's there's an interesting debate going on right now about how much of this is intentional and how much of this is simply a difficult problem to solve. Matt Housley, got some good comments in the chat there. Want to talk? Oh about yeah, that. yeah, lots and lots of comments. After I mean, I've listened to a couple of podcasts about this issue. There, what was it? The billion hours of YouTube watched a year was a big KPI they were chasing, and there's a lot of evidence that they basically they drove all kinds of horrifying content to make that happen over time. And like now everyone is realizing what they've done and we're all trying to clean up the mess. But I think we're pretty far from really defining what ethical policies the tech industry should have to deal with this kind of content. It's yeah. It's one of the problems of our profession now. Yeah. These ethical problems are really hard and at the same time, interesting. Like if you guys have any good reading topics around this um, or reading books around this topic or people that I could bring on the show, please let me know. I'd be happy to have them on. Um, let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit. Antonio, you said you got a question. Go for it. Sure. And this is more of a discussion. I see, um, I know there's some people who post content on YouTube, on LinkedIn here. And the one thing I've seen, so I started posting content and I really want to, uh, give back. I started by going back to my college and cause my professor invited me, but then I saw some repeating questions. So I just decided to start posting on stuff and I, I see some good good engagement, which I'm happy about, right? Um, I am not looking to like make it big like Harpreet. I mean, he's world famous. But um, one thing that always gets me like, um, I don't know, like pumped on the on LinkedIn, it seems like everybody and I know we're in a data community. So this is like the perfect time uh, people for this is everybody wants to be a data scientist. And I know I was in the same boat, right? When I was starting out, um, that was kind of what I studied. I would go into work, you give me 20 records in an Excel sheet, instead of manually going through them, I would try to create, create like a predictive model, you know, because that was a cool thing. But I quickly saw that the value is not always there, right? A lot of times the business, all they care about is creating, creating value, solving a problem. Machine learning is a great tool, but it's not like end all be all. And so now when I started posting some of my videos, one of the videos that I posted was on, on resume building, right? I went through this recently, so I wanted to help them out. You put create your professional data analyst resume or data resume. Nobody wants to view it. Post the exact same video, just change from analyst to data scientist. Everybody's very interested all of a sudden and you get engagement. But I, and I don't I don't like the part of of kind of like the misleading. And I don't I don't think I'm misleading them when I change it to data scientist necessarily because I would still create the same resume for data scientists and uh, analysts, especially when you're starting out and you'll do work. But it's just I guess I just want less of a question and I just want to hear from the people on this call who had experience with this. How do you how do you balance when you create content between like really staying true to what you want to show to people versus trying to kind of get a little bit of the views going, Greg, right? Because you want to spread your message and you want people to see it. So I don't want to come out as saying like, well, you're you're misleading people on purpose because you're kind of malicious. But in reality, right, you don't want to post something and it has your reviews. So I'll stop there. I know I said a lot of things, but I kind of want to hear from, from people. Yeah, that's a good topic, man. Um... I'm excited to see what other people have to say about this, but like 
me personally, dude, I don't really, I don't post much about data science or statistics. I guess statistics is more of my, my roots. Um, I just like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't like posting about it. I don't know what it is. Like, like, obviously I'm a data scientist. I love my work. I love doing this work. I enjoy it, but just posting about it to me, that's not, I don't know. I don't find that fun or enjoyable. I'd rather just post about like life hacks, which is probably why Mikiko unfollowed me, uh, but <laughs> life, <laughs> life hacks and, uh, and, and, and just positivity, just spreading positivity and mindset. That's more what I'm passionate about. Like, even though I work in data science, I wouldn't say like data science is my actual passion. Like I'm not like, I'm not that, that person. So I'll post anything that I just feel like sharing that I just feel like talking about. Um, I mean, I, I, I love Vin's post. Vin, like that's my go-to content with anything related to not breaking into data science, but growing in data science, because there's so much content out there about how to break into data science or what breaking into data science is like, 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 I don't, I don't really necessarily care about that anymore. I'm in data science. I want to know how to grow and develop and make it to the top in data science. And there's like a huge gap, right? There's, there's this post about breaking in and that's it. Like, there's nothing in the middle. And I don't know if it's because people haven't been trending up or moving up the ladder and everybody's just aspiring to be a data scientist and there aren't any data science leaders on LinkedIn. I, like, I don't know what it is. Um, I'm going to just stop there and let's hear from Al. Al on this one, Albert, go for it. And then uh, I'd love to hear from Vin on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you I think you started to address what I was going to say right here at the end. It's just, you look at the population of like how many actual data scientists are there out there? And then how many of those are on LinkedIn looking to talk to each other or on YouTube looking to talk to each other and learn from each other? I would say that uh, I think Robin Hunt hit on it a few weeks ago when she was on our show. Uh, most of the, not, not to insult anyone here, but if you are working as a data scientist, most likely you're busy working and not doing so much branding and engaging on social media. There's a ton of great people branding and engaging on social media. And, and a lot of them, a lot of you guys are making your money that way. Uh, get that. But you think of probably the majority of population of actual data scientists are too busy data sciencing to, you know, to talk to each other and teach people, especially to teach people that are aspiring to get there on LinkedIn. Much larger population of people on LinkedIn that want to become data scientists or want to get a job or want to want to upskill. Um, th those are the ones that are out there that are hungry, that are consuming content. So yeah, of course, you put data science in anything on YouTube or on LinkedIn. That's automatic clickbait. Um, and, and we just found with our you know, our channel is is analytics pure. But if you put data science in the title of the video in some form, yeah, you're automatically probably almost doubling your views. Yeah, like my, my content, dude, I schedule it. I, I spend two hours on a Saturday afternoon and I just schedule everything out for the rest of the week. And I probably log into LinkedIn maybe twice a day just to like and comment and whatever. And then just get back to, to, to work. But um, like I was saying, like Vin's posts are like the ones, anytime I open LinkedIn, it's always like the first one I see. And it's just like, I love it because it's not about how to break into data science. It's about, okay, how to climb up that ladder and, and become a leader in data science, which is much more like my focus and mindset now. And I think there's a gap for that content. So Vin, I'm just going to stop talking and turn it over to you and, and, see your thoughts on this. You know, I think it's interesting because exactly what you, you know, pretty much everybody said this, if you do it the way it should be done, if you say what you really think is valuable and what you really think is important, it is not immediately seen that way. And in many cases, you have to package it, you know, and I look at it that way sometimes is, 
part of being noticed, part of being able to help people is really putting it in pretty packaging and giving them, you know, a little bit of frosting on top. And they think, oh, it's a cupcake. They bite in and all of a sudden they got to think. And you're going to have a certain population who is only going to be there for the frosting. And I do frosting posts. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing, you know, sort of the either inspirational or traditional influencer or, you know, whatever you want to call it type of posts that appeal to a very, very large audience. That's my frosting. But underneath that, I'm going to talk about causal ML, which nobody, you want to talk about a post that lives on Desolation Island, talk about causal inference. It will live forever in the middle of nowhere and no one engages with it. But if you look at the research community, it's huge. That's where we're going. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about causal inference, causal ML, all the problems, you know, that I run into trying to do it on a regular basis, all the flaws, and you're going to see just bubkiss engagement, but I'm going to have to build that category. I'm going to have to build that up and get people to the point where they understand why this is important, why it's an important way to start thinking about your job, how it's going to help you do your job better. And if I do a good enough job of that, I'm going to create that category. I'm going to create that segment. And it's going to suddenly be a frosting segment that a whole lot of smart people can get into and start talking about. And so for the majority of your content, I'd say, you know, 80-20 rules are great here. 80% of your content really has to be frosting. But you want to use the other 20% now that you've sort of batter, battering rammed your way into the hearts of people by saying exactly what they're thinking and saying what it is that they want to hear and packaging it in a way that they want to consume it. Use that 20% because you're going to be in their feed anyway. Use that 20% to start building categories that you think are important and creating airtime and creating space for those topics and those things that you think are important. And always look for something that's underserved. Always look for an area where people just aren't there. And it's hugely important because we need leaders in the field. And so I talk about leadership. We need product managers in the field. So I talk about strategy. We need all of these different areas that don't exist in the field. And we need to evolve the field from where it is now to, you know, certain five, 10, 15 different directions my opinion is obviously causal, but there's going to be, you know, you're going to have an idea of where to go and you're going to have an idea of where to go and you're going to have an idea of where to go. And so use that 20% of your time that you've sort of bought by giving people frosting to explain those really important things. And seriously, don't care if it gets zero engagement. Eventually you'll create a space for it. And there will be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that are grateful to you for using your voice to create that space. I absolutely love that. Thank you, Vin. Thanks, Vin. That was awesome. Definitely take that advice. Mikiko, do you want to uh, chime in here? Mm, no, not really. I, I I do think part of it, right, is like your perspective will change depending on like what, what part of your career you are in and what part of the space you're in, right? So, um, so like right now, for example, my focus is all on like the MLE, like MLOps space, right? And, you know, part of that I think is because, well, I'm moving into that space. So, you know, that's, that's where my mind's at, right? But I think part of it too also is like, is, is where sort of like the disciplines are rooted in, right? So, Data science at, at its core is still rooted in research. It's rooted in applied statistics, mathematics. Um, whereas like there's other like parts of the machine learning field, for example, like, like MLE, it's really like MLE is, is rooted in software engineering, right? So 
I think like depending on sort of like which space you're in and where like those fields are, subfields are rooted in, that's where you'll sort of start like adopting a certain school of thought, right? Like in, in the data science world, certain, certain sort of considerations are not top of mind because part of it's because it's not rooted in those areas, but part of it's also because it's, it's what is the ultimate thing that you are delivering, right? So like for a lot of data scientists, um, I think it, there's still some kind of like trailing, trailingness of it used to be the bucket field. Um, now for a lot of companies, it is starting to diversify, right? Where they have like data analysts, data scientists, like MLE, ML, like uh, DevOps, like the data engineer. So now it's a little bit more specialized. Um, but I think part of that, like, once again, like it's, you know, what, what are people saying in the space? It just depends on like, you know, are you in that space and where you are in your career? Uh, and also I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think those are the, the two pieces, um, you know, like, so, uh, Matt, uh, Matt Hussley and, and Joe Rise, right? Like they're on call right now, right? They have a lot of beautiful content on data engineering and like ML systems and all that. And two, three years ago, I would just not have paid attention. Cause I'm like, I am so deeply focused on just delivering some like really, really good models. Cause in data science, it's all about like algorithms. It's all about like feature engineering. Um, but then when you start kind of going more high level, it's like, okay, well, shoot, how do you actually get any value? out of these like models, you know? Um, and then you start right. thinking, okay, like it, does the model really matter? You know, you read like the free lunch theorem and, and you're like, does the model really matter? Does this your model matter in the scope of delivering value? Probably not. Um, it's probably right. The combined efforts of lots of like data scientists and all that, you know? So it becomes more of a question of like, probably the system matters, the ability to deliver like consistently. Right. So I would say like, that's, that's probably like a huge part of it. Right? I think once you start getting into like the different sort of subfields, like when you start getting into, um, I was gonna say crypto, <laughs> when you start getting into deep learning, that's when, you know, the research around hardware and what NVIDIA do is doing what like Apple is doing with the M1. That's probably when it becomes a little bit more relevant, right? When you get into data engineering, that's when it becomes like these arguments about like, oh, well, you know, do you use GCP versus like Azure versus like AWS? You know, so I think that's just like it's 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 very natural when people move into different stages and different subfields, certain things will start popping up. Um, you know, but I would say like yeah, I think I think you're very very right on that one. I guess depends what part of your career you're at because and I think that that's kind of been where I've tried to go with my content is everybody just wants data scientists, data scientists. And I know the pay is always better for data scientists than like data analysts, but I've noticed a lot of organizations, right? Uh, the data scientists, uh, if, if you're just specialized and you're just coding, if you don't know the business, without a data without a data analyst, you're probably not going to get much done. Or if you build a model, you can't put it into production in a lot of cases if you don't have a data engineer. And that's why I'm trying to open up kind of people's eyes like, OK, there's more than just getting uh, some code on Kaggle, putting it in a notebook, and nobody ever looks at it again, right? There's so much that goes into the, the career, and I'm just waiting till that day till just be, I think I just think that people are going to be a lot happier if they kind of like focus on those things, and they, they're going to be more successful at work rather than just, uh, I, I can build this nice looking thing, a deep learning model in, in Python, or like, oh, I can do a computer vision. I'm like, I don't know any fortune, like there's very few corporations 
situations that you're going to walk into day one and somebody's going to ask you to do computer vision, right? Most of us are going to be cleaning up the data or automating some kind of uh, Excel sheet or some kind of a dashboard. To me, that's where the value is. And that's what I kind of like trying to convey to people in order to find that value rather than focusing on the cool things that really you're not mostly like not going to use that work. But no, thank you all for all your thoughts. I do think it's it's a decision, right? Like in the sense of, um, I think my personal stance is uh, I don't want to... So some, some people can be really good at a job and they just don't know it. You know, I don't want to reinforce, I don't want to reinforce people's negative uh, stereotypes about themselves, right? Um, so I think it, it, it's a fine balance between you know, showing people like, you know, this is the possibility of the field and then showing them at the same time, like, you know, this is the troll toll you're going to have to like pay, you know, like if you, for example, don't cover an engineering background and you try to move to an MLA role, that's just, I mean, it's been incredibly painful, <laughs> right? Uh, for me personally, right? Um, so I think there is like a balance. I know for me, I, I stopped posting because at some point I was like, you know, I had to really think about like, what was the message I was like bringing across? And I think it, on the one hand, it's good that some people uh, apparently appreciated my content and they found it very inspirational. But then at the same time, I felt like when I would paint to them, you know, the uh, 60 hours of work a week, the like not seeing friends for two years, two consecutive years, I did not see a bunch of my friends, you know, um, things like that. I think then they kind of felt like I was sort of deterring them when it was like, you know, I just want to be honest about like, you will pay a troll toll. How, how big it is, is kind of where you're at. So, you know, for me, I, I stopped posting as a result until I could be like, what am I really sort of what can I share? But um, I think for everyone, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line, right? Do you encourage people knowing that some of them will probably get burnt um, because they're overly optimistic? Uh, but do you paint, you know, sort of the cost like that you have personally sort of experienced when maybe other people will not experience that same journey, you know? So like, yeah, right. I mean, That's true. yeah. I mean, kind of like when I ask questions on my podcast, right? when I have guests on it, it, obviously the podcast is for an audience, but if I ask questions that are specifically for the audience, like I wouldn't enjoy it. When I ask questions on the podcast, it's for things that I'm actually interested about, things that I actually want to learn about and know about. And if the audience gains something from it, then awesome. I've done my job. And I kind of treat the way that I post content on LinkedIn the same way. Like I don't really do it for the audience. It's mostly just reminders to myself that this is how I should be living my life. And this is how I get things done. Um, and just putting it out there. And like, I will go back through my posts and just remind myself, oh yeah, yeah, I've got, this is how I do this. Yes, this is how I do that, right? So it is very much so as much for me as more for me as it is for an audience. Um, yeah, great discussions. Anybody else want to add anything to this topic? That's some good discussion going on. All right. If not, then let's go to, we'll go to Albert's question and then Tashi's question. Okay. So um, this is kind of a personal recommendation question. I'm not looking for anyone to say, choose A, B, or C. Um, just looking to see if there's impressions of different, different things and, and what, you know, kind of what you would recommend, almost more of an up and down on each one. Um, so we have an opportunity in the military. If your command can spare you. There's something called SkillBridge. And it's basically just an internship that you do while you're still under contract. Um, and so I, I have three, roughly three paths I can take. Um, and they're, they're kind of rapidly evolving. The one that I wanted to do, there's a military contractor that I wanted to do an internship with them. And these internships are supposed to turn into paid work um, at a a pretty high rate of 90%. Basically, if you, if you don't show up and are a complete idiot, you're going to get hired at that company. Um, and that's the agreement. Um, so the company that I 
that I eventually want to work for that is present in my area is not set up to support this internship. I just found this out a couple of days ago. So I have to look at other options for working the internship and then still possibly work for this company once my contract's up. So one option is the uh, Microsoft, and I always get the order wrong, Microsoft Software and Systems Academy, um, which would give me a, a cloud app developer cert. Um, one of my things is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm short on the, the hard skills as far as I'm not not good at coding anything yet. I'm working on it, um, but I, I'm attracted to the idea of doing a boot camp, um, and that would just be, you know, tons of code all day long. Um, and and so that has some appeal. Um, probably not going to look to work for Microsoft at, at the tail end of that. I'll probably go back to that military contract. So there's that. Interested impressions on that. Second one is there are some other companies um, that would give me professional experience, um, kind of a mixed bag. And at the end of them, at the end of those internships, they would be looking at me like, hey, you're come work for us. Um, so that there are a couple different pretty good ones, but that would be more professional experience and a little less on kind of developing the skills unless I do it on my own. Third one is, and this one just popped a couple of days ago, is uh, there was a, a fang company, Shall Remain Nameless, that um, asked, basically offered me an internship. Um, this fang company is not, uh, they don't offer employment on the back end. It's fine with me. I wasn't looking to work for them. Um, but I really would like to do the internship for the experience. The one yeah, but with that is they have only just got into the military internship game. Um, it's a company that kind of has a reputation for not being super military friendly. And I think they're trying to fight against that. And so their program is not well developed. So there's a solid chance if I go work for them, they're not going to have much for me to do. Um, it is improving rapidly. I talked to the, the people that are currently working there. They said they, they really haven't done much, um, but looking at the program, the way it is going forward, they have more structured work for us to do. Um, so it's a bit of a roll of the dice, definitely be a, a good feather in the cap for the resume, but again, not, not looking to work for that company anytime soon. Um, nor do they, and then the, the other kind of stick in the craw there is they don't guarantee anything to the military members that come work an internship for them. Not, not an interview, not, not a job, not nothing. So, um, you know, you're, you're lucky to come intern for us and, you know, thanks for the members. So while I have no interest in working for them in the short term, that still seems like kind of a messed up thing. Uh, so I'm not sure what I want to do with that. And I've I got to make a decision here next uh, two weeks or so. So just just thoughts on any of those. I'm, I'm open to anything. Yeah. So I'm going to turn to Joe on this one. I'd love to hear what Joe has to say. But I would I would start off by saying, um, can we calculate expected values of of these opportunities, right? And by expected values, I mean expected values for potential future payoffs in terms of outcomes for jobs or potential to set yourself up for future jobs. Does that make sense? Like, can we assign, can we assign probabilities and weight these op opportunities in that way, right? But you're going to have to tie it to some, you know, whatever benefit it is that you have as your end goal, right? Um, hopefully that makes sense. I'm, I'm thinking in bets here. Um, Joe, what do you think? I agree on the expected value part. I, I would also say, you know, at this point, there's a, there's a lot of intangible factors besides, um, you know, the safe option or, or risky option or something, right? It's like, who are you going to meet at, in your internship? Who's going to, um, you know, help take you to the next level, right? And so... Um, and those are some, it's at this early, it's, it's sort of like the it's, it's a, it's a paradox because the safe path path may be the risky path in the long run and vice versa. Um, so I know you mentioned the Fang company and that you may or may not, you know, you kind of on the fence of whether or not you want to work with them. Um, I would look at it through the lens of like, who are you going to meet during your experience there? 
uh, because the people at the Fang are the, not the people you're going to be meeting at these other places, and that could open some doors for you. Um, and I would yeah. say, like, you know, I mean, does Skillbridge allow you to um, kind of intern hop, so to speak? No, it's uh, it's going to be a one shot deal. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, that's how I'd evaluate it. it it's it, I have no doubt. I mean, you're a hustler, right? You're going to find work. You're going to find. And I think you're going to do really well in your career. I'm not that concerned about that. I mean, uh, I mean, there's no bad option. I mean, that, none no, of these things is going to be a net negative. That, no, you're not, you're not being offered like a drive-through position at Arby's or something, right? Like you got like something going for you. So, well, unless you want to do that, then go for it. But um, whatever. Been there. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but point being, it's it's. I don't know. I always look at it through the lens of uh, you know what are what are the intangibles of this position that are kind of hard to replicate, right? So yeah. Um, and yeah, I would I'd flip the question too and say, okay, so what's what's the riskiest part about the safest option, and vice versa? So I like it. And cool. also, like I want to hear from Vin after this. I'm sorry, we'll hear from uh, Jay after this, and then Vin after this. But like I would also say think kind of looking forward like what do you hope to achieve right where is it that you're actually trying to get to with your career and let's not think five years or three years in the future let's think like a year to 18 months in the future where is it that you see yourself uh and then which one of these opportunities more closely aligns to that or which would be the the biggest stepping stone to get you there Right. Um, that's definitely something to, to, to consider there. Um, let's hear from Jaya and then from Vin and then Mikiko. Um, Albert, I don't know if you know, um, there's an organization called Breakline. Um, they they recruit vet, military veterans and they put them in tech companies. Um, not sure if you know them, but uh, they're pretty good about training them up. Uh, to go into tech companies. So the person who's running that is Bethany Cotes. Yeah, so check out breakline.org. So they really do help all the veterans and the military folks to get in uh, tech companies. So they train them up. You you go through like, a I don't know how many weeks of a program. And then, uh, you know, they do like mock interviews, uh, those kind of stuff. So check them out. They're pretty popular. Yeah, appreciate then, it. I, I have heard of them. I never... Uh... I don't think I, I was just inundated with so many other things. I don't think I looked into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it. And the other person is Daniel Savage. Uh, he's also another person who's into, he does office hours for military folks. So open office hours, so you can go through him as well. And and he also looks out for people who work in the military and he hires them for to work in other companies. Excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Let's go to, uh, to Vin. What I find, and this is going to be sort of a tangent on advice, but what I find with um, having that many opportunities and that many choices is that you feel like what's right in front of you is what's right for you. And you're sort of blinded to opportunity by what's available. And there's a lot available to you. And it sounds like you have some great options. But what I would do is say, okay, if I, if you were to throw all of that off the table, is there a better option? Is there a stretch? Is there something that you're not seeing? Is there, is there something that's better aligned? Because a whole lot of, a whole lot of your thinking right now sounds like it's tied up with, here's what's been put in front of you. Here's what's available to you. You know, here's sort of what you've been able to, to gather up using the time that you've had, but what else, what are you missing? What else is there? And also, do you have your goals well enough defined that you're able to evaluate opportunities well? Because when you have a ton of opportunities like this and you have some questions, it may be an opportunity for you to look at your goals. Are your goals specific enough? Are they targeted enough? Are they achievable enough? 
that you can evaluate all of your opportunities with respect to what you want to do over the next two years, five years, and then longer term down the road. So like I said, it's not exactly specific to giving you a, this is the right answer or wrong answer. But a lot of times when you're faced with this many decisions, those two things help out the most. One, look at other options, look at something else that maybe you just aren't looking at. That's also obvious and available for you that these options are sort of obscuring and also clarify your goals in more times than not that goal clarification makes your best option. Very obvious. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I don't know if you saw what I posted today, but I, I had uh, most of my planning and, and transition work has been kind of on the cheap and during uh, free time because I had a job that basically ate my life and it's, today was the last day. So, Oh, damn. Yeah, I appreciate Congrats. the perspective though, man. Congrats, man. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Let's uh, let's hear from Mikiko and then Tor. So I'll move your hand down toward Mikiko. So it's, I think I need the catch line. I agree with what Joe says. <laughs> That's pretty much my, my, like what I'm thinking every time, like we're on a call together. Um, yeah. I mean, so, and Ben's also right. Like it just depends on like what your goals are. So for example, like if your goal is to just make sure you have like in- income coming in, then obviously you'd go with the one that guarantees a job. Um, but if you're, goal is to like, sort of like go big. Um, you know, I posted some considerations, which is that, do I think, do I think that Fang is like the best place to work? Not necessarily. Like, for example, if you're over at Amazon, apparently it's really team dependent. You could enjoy it or you could get divorced. Um, I know people who have done both, uh, or sorry, uh, one of the other category, right? Like they've been on like the on-call team and it was tough on their marriage. Um, Right. Uh, but I mean, so some of the things I posted there, right, like fangs are kind of like a hard nut to crack. So it's kind of like once you crack in there, uh, recruiters will be hounding you for pretty much the rest of your years. Um, and also too, like, it just makes it easier when you are, for example, like getting like venture funding. Um, they do look at like what, you know, companies you've worked at and all that. With that being said, it's not guaranteed. It, it's not guaranteed. Like I, I've definitely, you know, as part of data science stream job, right? Like we've, and Harpreet knows, it's like, We've had um, students come in who they probably had some of the best recommendations in the world, great credentials, and they still couldn't like nail the job in a certain like window, right? Um, I don't think you will you will struggle from some of the same sort of communication and 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 you know marketing issues that maybe some of them had to work on a little bit. Um, but you know, to Joe's point, right? Like uh, you have to think about the intangibles, like as you point out, and it's just that like you know. If your if your goal is to once again like keep a roof over your head, um, then you want to take the job, the one that's guaranteed job. If your goal is to um, you know like aggressively learn as much as you can, aggressively network, some of those other options might be better. And I think the other thing I just uh, caution is that like I know with COVID, right? Like when quarantine hit, um, I know all my friends, even at jobs they were miserable at, were like, we are just bad. We're just going to batten down the hatches. We're not going to make any big moves. And that was really smart. Um, but they are starting to like roll out the vaccines. Um, there is a lot of like hope and opportunity. And so I would just be cautious too that, you know, when you are making your decision-making really kind of uh, ask yourself, you know, are you being influenced by these like exogenous sort of uh, factors? Like for example, you know, your fears about the economy or like your livelihood and just really understand how much of that is a risk. Um, like in, November of last year, right? Like I quit my job. It was guaranteed for a year, like yeah. at Peldoc to work on an early stage startup. Um, but I didn't just quit and go like, yay, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go be unemployed uh, and lose insurance. Right. Uh, I quit knowing that first off, I had four or five interviews 
uh, that week uh, for jobs that paid as much or more. Um, I quit understanding that I had a game plan, you know, um, and I asked, had also talked it over with uh, the, the better half slash head of the household and all that, right? Um, so I had done my due diligence before I made those decisions. And so it made it easier. Right. Um, but that's just kind of like sort of the, my advice I would give. Um, yeah. Can I just tack on something real quick? I mean, like today I was, uh, climbing with a friend of mine who's a PM, uh, product manager over at Amazon. And he said, you know, working, I asked him, so what, you know, what's it like working there? And he's like, well, it's, it's crazy. You know, he's, he's a very smart guy. Um, you know, he said, this is the first time, uh, in a, in a really long time that I felt like I'm working with people who are just way smarter than me, like every single one of them, just league smarter. And he says, this is awesome. Um, so part of it is just like, what, what kind of team do you want to start out playing on, you know, when you're starting out in your career? Um, I've always been a fan of just finding the best people to surround myself with. And even if I totally suck, like that is going to push you harder and faster than you would probably any other way. Like you, you just be, you're going to be a changed person. So that's something to consider, you know? I mean, obviously there's other factors like Mikiko said, where it's, you know, it kind of, it is what it is and it is what it is. But you have a chance to go work with, you know, even in the peripheral of like some of the brightest people around, yeah. something to consider. So... That's great. Appreciate it. And you should not be ashamed also. Well, okay. I don't, I'm not saying you're ashamed of being military, right? I think, um, you know, the question of like, will you sort of come up against some like biases, right? Because of your military status. Uh, my granddad, he was in World War II. He was a spy over in Europe. Um, you know, like it's, it's, he has these scars. He was afraid of getting into the water. We had an mm-hmm. idea of roughly regionally where he was, um, you know, and I'm, I'm very proud of, you know, his sacrifice, for the country, um, you know. So I think you know everyone is biased. Everyone will will run run up against some bias. There's nothing you can do about it, and I don't think there's anything you should do about it. I think you should continue to be like a proud example of you know what can come from like being in the military and having that experience. You know. So I would say that like, and if anything, you know, if you do come up against that bias, you don't have to educate. But I think it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, cause once again, like my family comes from the military, I'm very proud of that experience. Um, you know, and I think, uh, yeah, you know, that's just kind of my two cents on that. Thank you. Thank you for your service, man. Let's get a round of applause for Albert for that my one. Pleasure. So, uh, Tor, you had your hand up. I know Tor always got some great advice. Uh, so go for it, Tor. Yeah, Albert, first of all, thumbs up. It's time to just breathe. You finish the job, celebrate. Yeah, Personally, you have two weeks, which is plenty of time because normally by the time you make a decision that takes a second and you will feel it so for me i would recommend now right now just enjoy take the weekend a week and relax and kind of let the past be the past and kind of summarize everything when it comes to work your next step okay these are all from what i understand all internship jobs so yes. I'm assuming the pay isn't really the highest here, uh, if any. Well, there's, sure there's, I still get paid in the military. So it's that's zero okay. consideration. So you, I'm legally not allowed to get paid for these jobs. Right. So you're still getting paid from the military. So you'll have your income. So, But to me, either way, for me to pick something, you have three options. And that is really nice. And considering other things while over the next couple of weeks, that's kind of short, okay? But you have three options. And to me, I always say, go with the heart. The, the feeling you have when you talk to people, if you get a good gut feeling, and I'm sure based on your experience in the military, you, you learn to recognize and people and the feeling you get from people that you talk to. That gut feeling and 
also make sure you do something that you think are going to be fun. Because if you don't have fun, the job is 200% harder than it ever will be and you will not succeed. If you can have fun while you're doing your job, the money will come. I wouldn't worry about it, okay? It's like the future. You get a job now, internship, you have fun, you will succeed because that fun will then be communicated to others. You may not end up having a full-time job at that company at the end of the day, but you will definitely have a network already built up that can then give you references. So having that smile every day, uh, wanting to go to work, not because you have to, but because you feel like and you want to have fun when you go, that's key for everything. So go with your gut feeling, follow your heart. Um, there is no limitation. You can, like you said, you can learn on the side if it's not directly related. But this is something you can do all along. So I wish you all the best. Um, I think you will have, with the right attitude, and, and you already have the attitude, given your background already in the military, uh, the work mentality you have, that's for sure. So that's not a problem. And the mentality to talk to other people, how to be with other people and being yourself, it's already there. So go for it, man. Awesome. Just, uh, just have fun. That's the key. Thanks, Tor. Yeah, man. You, you're in a good situation. You got... Oh, I, no lie. Yeah, it's great. You got a future with some motherfucking options, man. That's what people yep. dream about. So, uh, dude, that's awesome. So Thanks, man. Um, I'm excited to see, uh, I'm excited to see this, uh, the, the, the status update on LinkedIn telling you, you know, where you ended up going with. So I'll be there. Yeah. I'll have the, uh, I'm, I'm humble and, and honored and, you know, all the other cliches. Looking forward to it, man. So let's wrap it up with uh, Tashi's question. Thank you for being patient, by the way, Tashi. Oh, yeah. Um, hello everyone. Thanks so much for all the insights of today and every day. Uh, I just wanted to ask a very high level question as for a undergrad student looking to break into a machine learning engineer, uh, what would be a better path, uh, would it be better to go from data engineering to MLE or from data science to from data scientist to MLE? Uh, I'm going to turn this one over to Vin if he's still here. And then from Vin, we'll go to Joe. But my intuition says data engineering to MLE. Um, but then again, I'm just a data scientist. Uh, Vin? Um, there's so many different definitions of data scientist right now that you can start in a machine learning engineering position that they mistitled as data scientist, no matter, you know, so what I would say is ignore the job title because most people that are hiring machine learning engineers are fairly low on the BS scale. So they're just going to look at what you know and what you know how to do. And the job title is going to be fairly unimportant to them. Whatever you kind of go into as your first role, whatever you're targeting, make sure it's heavy technical and heavy architectural. You know, as much exposure to the architecture and that side of it as you can get. Because while the coding is super important, understanding stacks, how to design them, how to implement them, and then how to take what other people have built and deploy on a particular stack, all of those are pretty much your most important to get noticed type skills. Vin, thank you. Uh, Joe, what do you think? And then after Joe, let's go to Makiko. Yeah, well, you were a, say you were an undergrad? I didn't catch that part. Yeah, I just graduated recently. What, what did you graduate in? Statistics. Oh, um, it's a good field. Yeah. I did too. Um, so, um, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I mean, did you take any like CS classes? 
very introductory classes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a tough one. I mean, you, you probably, you mean, you know, because you got to learn the machine learning part, which you probably sort of implicitly know through statistics. You also got to be obviously engineering sort of implied too. So you got to be good at programming, and not just scripting programming, but actually like writing software, right, um, or managing systems. Um, yeah, I agree with what Vin said. It's the title is um, it's going to be what it can go a million different ways. It, DE or I, would, I won't say software engineering might be an easier way to go, maybe even with that. So because um, I think what you really need to do is just get like really deep into programming for a bit. Like if you can get good software chops, I think a lot of things take care of themselves. Um, and I, I sort of see the role of you know, I'd love you know Hugo or Vince's perspective on this, but I can see a future when ML engineering is there's there's definitely some overlap with like data engineering and software engineering just because these fields in my opinion are already intersecting in, in ways that are kind of incestuous. So but yeah I would I would I would almost say like if you can find just like a good like software engineering job and I don't know what that is, that might be as good of a place to start as any because like you're um the place we want to go really heavy is just getting technical. Yeah, I'd say stats grad student and undergrad, like mm-hmm. yeah, dude, you don't learn anything about software engineering and statistics programs whatsoever. So yeah, so scratch what I said, you probably would have to start at a data scientist type of role, learn some software engineering chops, and then transition into machine learning engineer roles. But I mean, then again, what is it that you ultimately want to do with your career, Tashi? Like what what is it that you see yourself doing? in the future like the ideal day at work tell me what that looks like for you i'm not really sure so i know i graduated but i'm still like kind of exploring all the options out there um started with data science uh, initially because i'm a, a statistics major and um that's that looked the most viable but now as i learn more about the field um, the engineering and machine learning engineering seems to be more attractive to me so that's basically pretty much it well i'll turn it over to uh, mikiko i think part of it right is like how much how much information do you have to really make a decision with um wait tasha did you just graduate undergrad yeah oh god so young (laughs) no because i think like so um as someone who has elder wizened sage um anyone knows that uh comedian um but uh i would so I agree with both uh, Vin and Josh. There's nothing that I disagree with with what they said. I think um, over the long term, your technical chops are going to make or break your success in like machine learning or data science AI. Um, for me personally, making that decision honestly has has been incredibly painful. Like it's been way more painful than uh, I would say making the transition from like uh, like operations to data scientists. Um, and a huge part of that was because, uh, first off, I have never taken a CS theory class. I've never taken um, anything in, on like software engineering best practices and certainly nothing in distributed um, or infra or anything. So, you know, between all those three, um, I think the lack of software engineering skills and like really good proficiency with a single language has really kind of, it's been hard to overcome. Um, but with that being said though, like when you're just graduating out of college, I feel like what's most important is that you can get into a job that is data E, right? Um, because the thing is like, you can, you can always kind of like pivot. And so in that regard, like, you know, with data science being kind of like this bucket title, it can sort of be like the easiest one to get into because it is very nebulous. Um, so that's like an option, right? Is you can go into data scientist's role there. But um, then you can start on your on the side, like doing more things around like data engineering and machine learning engineering. Now, one of the easiest ways to kind of figure out like, uh, we're well, not easiest, 
one of the short-term ways you can have to figure out what you like enjoy doing is doing an N10 project and thinking and figuring out like what parts of it did you really enjoy and, and, and being honest with yourself. Like it's totally okay to say like, you know, screw the machine learning and the algorithms and also the ADA. Um, there are tools you do need in your toolbox to be successful overall, but you can be honest with yourself and say you don't like it. Um, but you can also be honest with yourself too and say you didn't really enjoy the data engineering. You just enjoyed like, you know, getting a model up and then deploying it and then making it look really nice. So doing an N10 project will help you figure out like what parts did you sort of gravitate to? And then those are the parts that you can focus more deeply on like either outside of your work or even finding sort of independent projects within your first job. Um, so that would sort of be how I would focus it. It's just, you know, figure out what's like the job that you can get sort of um, sooner that will be a good sort of um, uh, launch pad. And then uh, once you're in that job, you know, then start figuring out what's your sort of plan like outside of that. All right. Thank you. Let me, if I can jump one quick comment in that I totally forgot on my first pass, especially for anyone that's as early in their career as you are, realize this field won't look like this field in five years. This field will be unrecognizable in five years. So no matter what you're targeting right now for your short-term role, you have to be looking so much further downfield because your career is going to, it just in data science, no matter what role you have in that category, of data science and machine learning. It's continuous learning, continuous in education, continuous uh, change and continuous adapting. And so more important than anything else, learn how to learn, learn how to pick up new skills, learn how to pick up new technologies, learn processes over everything else. Like get a good process for whatever sort of tasks are thrown your way and never lose those processes because those are going to be repeatable. Those are going to be things that you'll use through your entire career. And, you know, when you say, I want to be an ML engineer, that's a good place to start. Like great five-year goal, great, you know, this is short-term career goal. But you have to realize we may not have ML engineers in five years. Like it's that crazy of a field right now. Can I add to it? It's it's really good advice, Ben. And and, um, and that's why I'm saying you know software engineering might actually be a good place to start because personally I see um, the practices in software like DevOps, CI/CD, et cetera, et cetera. They're they're slowly being adopted into the data space, right? And so why don't you just go learn from software engineers who've already been doing this for like the last ten years? Because I see the data space as being at least some made up number seven, ten years behind um, uh, software, right? So just go to fish where the fish are, get the skills, and then translate them back to data. Even if that's even what you want to be doing in five years. I think to Vin's point, it's like roles are going to change. Your opinions on stuff may change, right? Like I think Rare is a person who sets out in a career and ends up still being in it. <laughs> And, you know, it, this, things happen. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. And like Vin said, the field MLE, especially that's changing a ton. I mean, it's just now become like a, it's somewhat of an official title. Um, and that's uh, the data space has yet to consolidate towards anything. And in fact, I, I, like I said, I, I think the, the roles of like software engineer, data engineer, machine learning engineer, whatever other title of engineer you're going to have in the future, like that's all like up in the air right now. Um, data scientist, I mean, that was like supposedly consolidated back in the early 2010s as a title. And like now I have no freaking clue what that title means whatsoever. Um, and anyone who tells you they think they do is like, I don't know. They have an opinion, I guess. But anyway. It's funny, like the a couple like people I've talked to, when they were talking about what their MLE role was, it was it was like, oh, it's helping the data scientists write good code and like getting it into production. It's like, <laughs> okay. 
funny. Like a few years ago, they um, like the full stack data scientists. That used to be like a thing, right? And it was basically trying to cover like the. I, I don't think it was covering the data engineering part, right? I think a lot of times uh, the data engineers were like like cloud ops or like um, like backend developers or whatever. But like the full stack deep learning thing was there. But now, right now, it's like it's it's funny. Like I think especially some of the bigger companies that are just sort of like making the change to like the digital strategy, which is like a bit like what, 10, 10 years of 10 years late. But a lot of them, it's like, they're like, yeah, we hired a bunch of like, so it's like, first they hired a bunch of data scientists and they're like, well, <laughs> they're producing these models, but like, why don't we have these fancy recommendations that like everyone else has? And then they're like, okay, so we need more data. Right. And then, so they hire a bunch of like data engineers and they're like, well, okay. So we have really great data. We have some like innovative models, <laughs> There hasn't been a way to like get it into the app. And so now, so now there's just like this dual push to like, I think hire like ML and using data engineers. I mean, I, I wouldn't hinge too much on the title, honestly, um, because, you know, at the end of the day, like um, MLE hasn't been around for a long time. Uh, data engineering as a title hasn't been around for a long time. The work has been around, but the title has not. But at the end of the day, uh, engineer has been around for quite a while, right? And so a lot of people who've, success, who've successfully made that transition, like we're engineers of, of a different kind, you know? So it's one of these things where it's like, it's good to learn sort of like those like first principles and processes and practices. Um, even if like, you know, the, the hype title or the, the, the hype company, um, you know, even if those have been new, right? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent tips. Um, you got a lot to think about my friend Tashi. So hopefully you can, uh, figure something out and or just become a dentist or something. that's like a way higher paying field and like cooler but here's the thing about being a dentist is that your inputs are very closely tied to your output because you have to show up every day at the office to get paid to be a dentist whereas as a data scientist i can do you know some days i'll do two hours of work and have a huge effect and some weeks i'll you know diddly daddle around for 40 hours a week and it's whatever um but yeah it's it's that's the good thing about it, being a data scientist and or being in this type of field is your outputs aren't that closely tied to your inputs, um, which means that you have high leverage with your time, which is valuable. All right, guys. Um, awesome conversations. Thank you so much for taking time to be here. Hopefully you guys got an opportunity to check out the uh, interview I released with the podcast today was with Dr. Paul Thaggard. Uh, he is a cognitive scientist and philosopher. We went in on AI ethics. He has an entire framework where he essentially mapped the Hippocratic Oath to machine learning ethics and kind of did a step-by-step -step type of um, a breakdown for that. And so it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, he's got an amazing book sitting on my shelf here. It's called uh, uh, the brain and the meaning of life. And he just talks about brain science and how to find meaning in life. And yes, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that book and enjoyed talking to him. Um, yeah. So check it out. Make sure you guys vote for your favorite content creators. Help us spread the word because right now it's just like a few people just dominating the polls, which is not what I wanted to happen. I was hoping to learn about people that I did not know about before uh, when I thought about doing this content creators award. And now I'm just hearing about people that I already knew about, um, which is cool. It's turning into a popularity contest. Uh, not the direction I wanted it to go though. So do something about it. Help me change that. All right, guys, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.